Um, hey, so I'm not preaching today, so you can all just kind of be okay. Um, but we are going to read scripture. This is my part of my family. Uh, this is Sarah, and this is Ben, uh, and Abel and Isaac are somewhere around here. Hey, there's Abel, and Isaac's too little to be over here, so he shouldn't be here. Uh, but Ben's going to read for us this morning. He's going to read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 for us, and I'm going to set this here for him. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And, see, and she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. <laughs> well, on that note, let's pray. <laughs> God, I thank you so much for this day, Heavenly Father, and I thank you for this time of worship that we're about to enter into. I pray, Lord, that you will speak through Luke, God, as he brings the word, God. Thank you so much for this church family, Heavenly Father God, and thank you, Lord, for this time that we get to spend together in your word, growing and learning. We love you so much. In Christ's name, amen. Well, amen. Let's take our Bibles. If you're not already there yet, Acts chapter 5 is where we will be the first 11 verses over the next few weeks uh, before Easter. We will be walking through Acts chapter 5, and uh, we'll take a break probably just for Easter Sunday and uh, celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then we will continue on in the book of Acts. Hope you had a good spring break. We did. Uh, the students and, uh, of course, Paul and Sarah and Courtney and Katie were at Lake Forest Ranch. We were there with six churches, and all week long we studied the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you this. No matter how old or how young you are, when the people of God seek to exalt the Son of God by studying the Word of God, God, the Spirit falls upon us. And it was a good week. Um, Anytime, because we don't look for outward signs, we don't look for signs and wonders, we just believe the word, and, but a Wednesday night was pretty special um, in an uh, extended worship time of, of really just prayer, um, and at one point I was, I was praying, 
Um, and the students were praying, and I heard to, to uh, my right, uh, my buddy Brandon Anderson, who's the worship pastor at Journey Church, he was counseling a kid about salvation. And to the left, I heard Derek Fretwell at Salem Heights counseling a kid about salvation. And while well, everybody was just praying, and there was people outside, inside. And so thank you so much. Many of you prayed. We prayed last week uh, for our students, and uh, it was a really, really, really good week. So thank you. Um, so much for that. It's an exciting day for Cross Point Church tonight. We're going to gather back for, uh, for a family meeting. Justin will tell us more about that at the end of the service. Uh, we're going to sign membership covenants, covenant ourselves, commit ourselves to glorify God by committing to his truth, his people, and his mission. Part of that membership covenant that you're signing has a commitment that we as pastors commit to you as a congregation. And one of those commitments is that we will teach you and preach to you the whole counsel of the word of God. And this is one of those mornings, the passage before us is one of those where if we were to leave it out and skip over it, we would not be teaching the whole counsel of scripture. And you know, when we sit down and, and when we plan out a, a book, we do the best we can. And as Justin shared with you last week, we were supposed to look at this passage last week and just wanted to get back into Acts and recap. But I, you know, when we, when we sit down to do those things, we, we aren't trying to like peg things like this would be a great day to preach this and let's skip and let, but it has fallen upon the sovereignty of the Lord for us to study the first 11 chapters of Acts chapter five on the day when we commit ourselves to each other, to the truth, to God's people and to God's mission. I don't think that's by accident. And I want to approach this passage this morning almost like Ben read it. I, that was a great way that he read it because I got, you know, just in the two minutes that he read, I got sucked in at the back and I said, man, this is a solemn text. And I think it shows us that our God did not have some like home makeover between Old Testament and New Testament. He's the same God of mercy and grace and love abounding in kindness and yet he is holy. He is righteous. And he's a God that judges. Now, if you're in Christ this morning, guess what? The eternal judgment that should fall on you because of your sin has been swallowed up by Jesus. Amen? And there's no more eternal condemnation for us. But as we'll see in this passage this morning, there are consequences for our sin. I read a lot this week on this passage, and I may stay, uh, I think I'll probably, will exert some energy in the course of this message, but I don't want us to lose the solemn nature of it. Because it, it's, a, it's a sobering passage. It's a difficult passage. We'll answer some of those questions that might be popping up in your mind. It's a tragic passage, but obviously, in the first five chapters of Acts, the Holy Spirit said it's a necessary passage. And so, just in recap for us, last week, the first four chapters, man, revival, right? 3,000 people converted on the day of Pentecost, plus the 120, so we're at 3120. And now, to this point, we will learn that 5,000 men had come to faith. And so, you start adding possible wives and children that have been converted by the Spirit, to, by believing the gospel. And man, we're in like 
maybe in the neighborhood of like 10,000 believers over a period of time. This didn't happen overnight. Like we're describing maybe possibly even a, a several months or even a year, maybe a couple of years when we get here. And you remember last week, we looked at this guy named Joseph. He was a native of Cyprus. Justin landed us there. He was a Levite, and he had sold a field that had belonged to him, and he brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet so that needs could be met, needs of ministry could be met. The first word that Ben read for us in verse 1 of chapter 5 is the word, but. Everything's going great, but. God is saving people, but. The church is united, but. People are living sacrificial lives, but. In Acts 3 and 4, we saw the attack of Satan come from outside the church through the religious leaders, through persecution, through jail, but Satan's attack moves differently. In chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, the attack comes from the inside. And this word but is going to be in contrast from what we just read about with the unity and particularly the sacrificial nature of Barnabas offering money, and now Satan will attack the church from the inside. The title of the message this morning is Sin in the Church. This passage is peculiar in this sense. It's a series of firsts. I was looking back in the book of Acts. Sapphira is the first mention of a woman since chapter 1, verse 14, a specific woman. This is the first mention of a named married couple in the book of Acts. Towards the end, we'll find this is the first mention of the word church, ecclesia, the assembly. And this is the first sin that's mentioned since the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And we have two people that unbeknownst to the congregation have committed themselves to hypocrisy and lying and deceit, and God doesn't tolerate it. D.A. Carson said this. I'll, I'll read several quotes to you this morning just because so much that I've read this week, but I want you to listen to what Carson says. D.A. Carson says this. Revival does not guarantee the absence of sin in a community. When many people are converted and genuinely transformed, when many are renewed and truly learn to hate sin, others find it more attractive to be thought holy than to be holy. And so in the midst of all this incredible spirit activity, we have a man named Ananias and a woman named Sapphira, husband and wife, that engage in sin that they thought was hidden, that they thought was secret, but God manifested. Several years ago, or, or many years ago, I should say, and not even in this century or the previous century, there was an actor in England that had committed entire Shakespearean plays to his memory. Macbeth, Hamlet, Julius Caesar, he had committed not just portions of that. Some of you had to memorize Mark Anthony's speech and Julius Caesar, right? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I did it from his Hyatt as a senior at West Jones. I forgot everything else except that portion. This guy had memorized not just one part, but the entire play, and he would travel throughout England, and he would recite the entire play, and he would act differently throughout the play. 
And because of just the nature of this, people had never seen anything like this before. I mean, the, the, the brain power, the personality, hundreds and in some places, thousands of people would come and watch this and people would be turned away to see this. He would travel from town to town, village to village. And he came to this one place and there was a pastor of, uh, who was uh, in charge of a relatively large building. <laughs> church in the building, right? Church is the people. But his church building was fairly large, and he was astounded at the amazement of this cultural miracle. This guy would come to town, he would do these Shakespearean plays, and people would just throng to these places. So he requested that the actor come and have a meal with him, and they sat down one day, and they began to talk, and then the pastor got down to it, and he asked a, a really just blunt question. He said, how is it that you, an actor, can fill buildings with hundreds and even thousands of people, so much so that they're turned away, and I, a pastor on the best Sunday of the year, have half the building filled. And the actor, rather prophetically, spoke back and said, Pastor, could it be that I make fake things look real and you make real things look fake? The greatest deterrent to real Christianity is plastic fake Christianity. And that is why God hates hypocrisy. He hates lying. lying. A lying tongue is actually listed in Proverbs 6, 16 through 18 as one of the seven abominations, the things that God hates. There's many things as a culture that we would find in that list that we don't find. We would think we would find in that list, we don't find. But many, oftentimes, sins that are found in local churches are found among the things that God hates. And here we have a man and a woman who engage in such hypocrisy to the point that God has to deal with it. I want you to see first this morning, big truth number one, I want you to see Ananias and Sapphira's deceitful plan. We're not told much about this married couple. We do know from their names, Ananias means the Lord is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. It's like sapphire. And I was listening to John MacArthur on this text this week, and Johnny Mac said, when you read this text, what they indulged in was anything but gracious and it was anything but beautiful. So it's almost like Luke is specifically bringing out the fact that, check this out, the way they acted didn't live up to their name. Not just their physical name, but as we'll see in just a moment, these two were probably born again. They were believers. So they weren't just living up to a physical name. They were not living up to a spiritual identity as part of the people of God. That's intentional on Luke's part. And so what is the plan here? They, like Barnabas, sell a piece of property. But it says here that with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. We know Barnabas was commended, if you'll look back in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You wonder when that name came about. It could have been that the, he was actively encouraging, and the fact that he sold a piece of property and laid it at the apostles' feet, man, that greatly encouraged people. You know, if, if uh, you know, the Lord works in, in the New Testament times the way he works today, like us preachers, we're all stressed out, and, and then all of a sudden, at the last minute, what happened? God takes care of it, right? And what at the last minute, it was at God's timing, we just didn't trust him as much as we should have. 
And, and I don't want to read into the text, but it could have been, you know, that there were some big needs and these apostles were praying for needs. And guess what? Here comes Barnabas right on time in accordance with God's sovereignty. He didn't really even know it. He said, hey, here you go. And guess what? That gift encouraged people. One commentator said he wondered if Ananias wanted a nickname. If Ananias wanted recognition, I think as you start reading and start thinking about this text, that was part of the plan was that first and foremost, they wanted recognition and praise. This was part of the motivation of their hearts. They saw what had just happened to Barnabas. They saw the praise and the encouragement that came from that gift. It was recognized in the church. Chapter 5, verse 1, but. This is a motivation to be seen, to be applauded, to be recognized. This is the type of recognition that in John chapter 12 is condemned by people who love the praise of men and not the praise that only comes from God. And so they see this recognition of what's been happening and so they come up with a plan themselves. And what's the plan? They're going to Bring money to the apostles, but they're going to keep back, it says specifically in verse 2, it was Ananias. He kept back, look, for himself some of the proceeds. Peter, when he confronts him, and we'll see in a moment in verse 3, he says, why did you keep back for yourself? And so it's important to understand here, not only did they want recognition and praise, but they were actually practicing spiritual hypocrisy. Now let's talk about hypocrisy just for a moment because we'll actually see what the real sin is in just a moment. But hypocrisy is putting forward the impression in public of yourself that you are something that you're really not in private. Hypocrisy is saying, y'all, this is who I am, when in reality, you're not. There's two types of hypocrisy. There's one that's public confession and public contradiction. I remember when I was in high school, we were off uh, visiting some, some friends and their son was in high school. And so it was Sunday. So Sunday night, we went to church with them as a, as a family. And uh, I was, you know, this is back in, in the late 90s. And we had like youth choir, and so I was the visitor, so I just hung out with my buddy, and we went to youth choir, and we learned some song to sing, and we got up in front of the church to start the service that night, and we, you know, sang some, some youthy song, whatever it was back in the day. And part of that song was a, it was a solo, and there was a girl that was, um, that was singing th that solo. So service gets over, and then I'm told that there was like this, this, this you know, Something, this event we're going to go to, obviously it wasn't connected to the church, but it was a bunch of teenagers getting down, or yeah, getting down, That's, I just tipped my hand. <laughs> and all I remember is I, I, I rode out with my buddy in the middle of a cow pasture, and yeah, there was alcohol, lots of it. First off, it was illegal because every person in that cow pasture wasn't old enough, you know, to, to drink alcohol, <laughs> 
But I remember what struck me, and I was just, I was a 10th grader, and I, I watched this girl get up on the back of this truck that two hours earlier, or an hour earlier, had sung in this worship service about how great Jesus was, and she just was chugging and chugging and chugging and chugging. And chugging. I didn't know any better. Like, a little while later, I just went back to the truck and just sat there. And I remember in my mind, it wasn't the alcohol or the excess of it, it was you just declared that you were something and then you just undid in public what you just said you were, who you were. It's like showing up, we saw Wayne Graves with a Mississippi State shirt on or a Wayne County sweatshirt on, we would say, what has happened to that man, right? That's Coach Graves. You've never worn a Wayne County anything in your life, have you? Yeah. Thank you for not selling out. We greatly appreciate it, okay? <laughs> Hypocrisy is, finds itself in public confession and public contradiction, but that's not the case here because no one but God knew what was going on. In this passage, it was outward confession of life with contradiction of heart. So one hypocrisy is that nobody knows but God. The other hypocrisy is everybody knows, including God, and Ananias and Sapphira find themselves here being complete hypocrites because what they're doing is simply a show. Now let me go to the other side of the ditch and mention this and just give some pastoral wisdom to you. Oftentimes, you know your sin, and you don't try to hide it or cover it up. And there's a sense of freedom in that, isn't there? That, hey, man, that guy knows I got struggles, and I got struggles, and we confess our sins one to another, and we'll be healed, right? Amen? And so we don't want to, we don't want, as a church, we don't want to walk around acting like, you know, we never have problems, and our hair's never out of place, and we've never burnt before in our life, and we've never thought bad things or said bad things. We don't want to create a culture like that, but check this out. We don't want to go to the other extreme where we all have struggles, we're honest about our struggles, and so we never do anything about our struggles. You understand? That's the other ditch. Where God's just kind of cool with my sin. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no. So the church is this, avoiding hypocrisy while pursuing holiness. And you know what we find ourselves in the Christian life? It's like a pinball machine, man. We, we try to find that balance. We try to find that groove. And sometimes we find ourselves in, in either ditch. And that is why on a day like this tonight, when we commit ourselves together, the reason we commit ourselves to other Christians is to help each other in that. Find that rhythm. Find that balance. Find that middle ground. But here, Ananias and Sapphira totally living in hypocrisy, totally putting forth that there's someone when they're not. Now, nobody knew this, but God did. And that brings us to our second big truth this morning. Not only is there a deceitful plan, but I want you to see Peter's bold confrontation. Now, I don't know what's going on here. I don't, I don't know if Peter had a lawyer friend and you know, he kind of, hey man, one of your, you know, one of your, uh, one of your believers sold a piece of property. Really? How much? I don't think that's going on here. 
I think what we're finding out is that God, in an extraordinary way, showed Peter what was going on. Verse 3. But Peter said, and notice where Peter says this at the end of verse 2. Ananias comes and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, kind of based off what's going to happen in verse 5, it's almost as if like this is taking place in a church service. Now, we, we don't ask y'all to come lay your offerings at our feet. There's boxes at the back, okay? Because that's how we believe that it should be done, right? And, but, but there was, what, what, I don't think this is a normative because it says that Barnabas came and did it, and it's almost like it's almost like Barnabas did something unique. That this wasn't the norm to lay the offering at the apostles' feet. And so Ananias, in order to get the recognition that Barnabas is, he tries to copy the same. He tries to recreate it. So this is very likely like this would be like in uh, a gathering. And I don't know how long their gatherings were, but man, it was still going on three hours later, we're going to find out, okay? But somewhere in this service, Ananias comes, and he, he I don't know if the apostles were sitting in a different place. We, we don't know all the dynamics. We don't want to uh, think wrongly about that. But he comes and he presents this. And everybody, you know, probably with the same reaction, look at, man, this is great. This is, this is the second time this has happened. Man, how incredible is this that, that God is taking care of needs, and all of a sudden, in Peter's mind, he smells a rat. And I think it was more than just a rat. This was a unique revelation by the Spirit to an apostle. And the Lord sovereignly and supernaturally revealed to Peter the sham of it all, of what Ananias was doing. Y'all, we don't claim this type of revelation, and I don't think... Anybody should just walk around thinking that they can know the situation. We really only have a few instances of this in the New Testament, but you know, perhaps in your life, you've seen someone and there's just been something come in your mind and your heart and just an uneasiness, or perhaps you see something in a brother's or sister's life and, and there's just uneasiness, or you wake up in the middle of the night and somebody's just on your heart, and when you think about a man, you're grieved and you don't know what's going on. I believe the Holy Spirit can give us discernment towards a brother and sister, not to be like Peter and say, hey, I know exactly what's going on with you, but to go to them and love, hey, can I take you out to eat? And just like be honest, like I don't know why we're doing this, but let me just tell you, I woke up last night, I was grieved over you, and I'm just making sure you're okay. Y'all, I believe the Holy Spirit does that. And I know personal testimonies where the Holy Spirit's done that. Not just to convict of sin, but for encouragement's sake. If, if you're ro rocking through the day and somebody just comes to your heart and your mind and five minutes later they're still in your heart and mind and three hours later, like the, the Spirit of God is doing that. You can pray for them, you can seek them out, you can you know, encourage them, whatever it would be, but, but there's a reason for that. Now this is a little heavier than that. Sometimes it seems like you know, our, our signal gets mixed a little bit, but Peter, man, he had a straight line right here. And he sees through it all and he calls out Ananias and Sapphira. Notice what he does in confrontation. I, before, I, before I put it, I just want you to, like, like confrontation sometimes is necessary. For somebody like me, my sinful nature sometimes enjoys confrontation, and that's sin. Like just walking around and, hey, because I mean, you know, I just would rather, let's deal with a pink elephant rather than everybody staring at it out of the peripheral, right? But, 
Confrontation has to be done with wisdom, and sometimes it's not best to confront. But we should not be the type of people that hate confrontation at all costs. Because when he has come, he will convict the world of what? Of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And if we never want to talk about sin, and we never want to talk about righteousness, and we never want to talk about the consequence of sin, we basically stiff arm the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we can't be involved in that. So there's a time and a place for confrontation, and Peter does it. What does he do first? I want you to see first, Peter confronted the specific sin. He confronted the specific sin. What is the specific sin? Verse three, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to, first, lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What was the sin? It was twofold. It was lying to the Holy Spirit. We'll see in just a few moments with Sapphira. It was testing the Holy Spirit, so lying and testing the Holy Spirit. And the second part, keeping back the proceeds. Now, sometimes people have looked at this text and they had said, see, it's a sin to not give God everything. Well, if that was the case, Peter wouldn't have said in the next verse, why it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then have you contrived this deed in your heart? Y'all check this out. The sin wasn't in selling the land and keeping the proceeds. That wasn't the sin. There was no sin in him selling a piece of property and not giving any of it. There was no sin in that. There was no sin in selling a piece of land and getting the proceeds and giving half of it or 10% of it or 90% of it. The sin was lying about what had happened. The sin was acting as if everything was promised, everything was given, while we still got more in the Folgers coffee can at the house. So check this out. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't necessarily want all of your money. He knows that you got bills. He entrusts you money. And the point is, be honest with your money. But what Ananias and Sapphira were doing, they were acting as if all of it had been given when in reality, what? It hadn't been given. And how do I know that? This word that's found in verse two, kept back, and this word in verse three, kept back, check this out. It literally means in the Greek, to hold back or to embezzle. Well, you can't embezzle your own money, right? (laughs) So you know what that tells us? That Ananias in some way, when he had come forward and laid it at the apostles' feet, he said, hey, here's all of the money from the proceeds of the land. Again, what's the contrast? Barnabas did it. He sold the land. Here's all the money. So Ananias says, I've sold the land. Here's all the money. And when that promise was made, guess what that money, who it now belonged to? It, all of it belonged to God and all of it belonged to the church. So at that point, for him to keep back anything, guess what he was doing? He was taking God's money away and he was embezzling money from the church. You see that? That verb tips us off to do that. And so the sin is not only lying, here's all of it, but we kept some back. But the sin was taking what had been promised to God and holding it back. We lie to the spirit when we promise all and only give some. We test the spirit by seeing how much we can get away with rather than giving all or what we promise to God. How close can I get to the line? 
Isn't that funny sometimes when we offer money to the Lord, how easy it is for us to spend money in this area and yet how hard it is sometimes for us to give money to dedicated for kingdom purposes, right? It reveals our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Peter confronted the sin, and, and I love that. He it was specific. But this is even scarier, y'all. Peter confronted the satanic influence. Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, need to make some distinction here. A believer cannot be indwelt or possessed by Satan, an evil spirit, or a demon. Why? Because having believed, you received the promised Holy Spirit, you were sealed with him. Someone who is sealed with the blood of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God cannot be possessed by Satan. This word, fill, is the same word that we've been finding throughout the first four chapters. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit again. He didn't come to live in them over and over again. He was already there. They were, check this out, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here, he's saying, listen, man, you were tempted and you gave in. And guess what happened? You have given control in your life in this area over to Satan. Now, Satan's mentioned one time. Ananias is mentioned like five times. So Ananias can't look and like be American in 2022. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You ever heard that one before? Poor devil. I mean, I know he's our enemy, but don't you feel sorry for him sometimes? He gets blamed for everything, you know? Sound, sound system messes up, poor devil. You know, he gets blamed for it. Power gets cut off, poor devil. Man, some churches in America, I'm not saying this is self-righteousness, some churches in the married devil's like, I ain't gonna fool them, they ain't no threat. Don't you wanna be part of a church that's a threat to, the, to, to hell? Don't you wanna be, it's, it's dangerous living. <laughs> but Satan, although he influenced Ananias since the fire, guess who ultimately made the decision? It was them, which kind of tells us that spiritual hypocrisy is satanic in nature. Let me keep going. Peter not only confronted the influence, he confronted the magnitude of their sin. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now look at what he says at the end of verse four. You have not lied to man, but to God. Now they had lied to man. They had lied to everybody in the church. They had embezzled, they had taken but what Peter's doing is, he's saying, compared to the sin that you have done against this body, it is not even worthy to be compared to what you have done against God. And this, this passage, Acts 5, 3, and 4, this is one of those verses where we see that the Holy Spirit is not a force or an influence. He is a person and he is God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, 5, 3. Guess what? You've lied to God. And there's a magnitude here. He's saying, listen, man, this isn't just that like you kept back a few thousand dollars so that y'all could have something for a rainy day fund. This is what you did. You deliberately, not just in your heart, but then you paraded in the sham of, of just pomp and circumstance in front of the church and you've lied to God. Peter had a choice here too, didn't he? Holy Spirit supernaturally shows Peter, hey, it's a, it's a fraud, it's a sham, he's kept back money. I mean, like, like Peter, Peter like nails like every area of this. Didn't Peter have a choice? Peter could have said, well, at that moment, you know, pragmatism, uh, we're, we're in desperate need of money and they got money and, you know, we don't want to offend the money people. We need this. 
Peter said, I will not partake in this hypocrisy myself either. That's where the rubber meets the road. Do we join in sin? Or do we confront it? Peter, at this moment, cared more for God's character and the church's purity than he did for Ananias and Sapphira's reputation. He cared. Isn't this amazing? Peter was taking everybody at this point. The poor widow, the orphan that had been taken off the streets of Jerusalem, the family of five, the family of three here. And Peter said, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much money you don't have. What's more important is God's reputation and the church's purity at this point. Something wild happens. Not only did Peter confront the sin, big truth number three this morning, it was immediate judgment from God, God's immediate judgment. You've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. Verse seven, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yeah, for so much. And Peter said, how have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Student ministry mentioned twice here. They serve as pallbearers. Young men come in. They wrap him up. Carry in and ice out. Three hours later, fire comes in. She's asked the same question. Peter says, you're about to die. She falls down. Isn't that interesting? There was no word from Peter about death to Ananias, but there was to Sapphira. John MacArthur says this, is there hypocrisy in the church? Yes. We are given this story not to show us that hypocrisy exists in the church, but we are given this story to see how God feels and acts towards hypocrisy in the church. So what's happening is the response to their sin we're given a glimpse into how God deals with hypocrisy. Now, why I believe that these two are believers is for several reasons. The context of Acts 4 and 5 is this group, this community. The word pleuro, which I told you, is not a filling, like an indwelling of Satan into their heart, but a control of Satan. That, that, points to the fact that they were probably believers. But the judgment that comes, we have to see even the judgment of this two people drop dead in different parts of a service in worship to God is even a gift of grace for the church. How? We see first Ananias fell down dead. He breathed his last. He expired. He lost his life. There might possibly be a physical explanation from this, that he was caught in his sin, he was busted, and literally his heart fainted within him. He, had a, he may have had a heart attack. We don't know all the spiritual, physical dynamics here. But the very fact that they wrapped him up, took him out, didn't notify his wife, kind of speaks of the fact that they understood that, that God did this. They would bury bodies sometimes the same day in Palestine because of the climate, but there's actually, an, there's actually a law in Deuteronomy that says if a man's cursed by God, you need to go ahead and bury him. 
Ananias, shocked, caught, falls down dead. But isn't it interesting when Sapphira comes in that Peter asks the question, tell me, maybe the money's still lying there. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And at that point, guess what? Peter was giving Sapphira what? The opportunity to confess. See the grace of God? Like when Ben read that text there, you're like, man, that's wrong. Like God killed those two people. Here in the midst of it, God through Peter is offering her a chance to own up to it. Now, would she have said differently had she known that Ananias had already died? Perhaps, probably, possibly. But you see, regardless of what we know the consequences to be, our attitude toward, toward sin should be the same. We shouldn't just want Jesus because we get out of hell. We should want Jesus because he's Jesus. We should want to turn from sin in our life, not just because it may wreck our marriage. Yes, it will. Or wreck our kids. Yes, it will. Or wreck our life. Yes, it will. But we should hate sin first and foremost because it's against God. And we love him. And we should fight the sin in our life. He gives her an opportunity. How amazing is this too? This, this may be some crazy thought to you. See how this passage honors women in the first century? She's considered an equal. And she's even given something that her husband didn't give it. She's given an opportunity to repent. Don't tell me Christianity degrades women. Don't tell me the Bible is a, is a misogynist book, is a chauvinistic book. It's not. It was Christianity. And it was the Old Testament that said that men and women are equal in this, in the sight of God. Different roles? Absolutely. But value is not one of them. So here's the big question. Why would God do this? <laughs> I'll be honest. I've read this passage before and be like, man, it's, it's just money. I'm sure someone some, sometime has thought, well, God should have just been happy that he got one penny from him. It's kind of cruel, isn't it? This isn't the first time that people have been struck down because of sin in the Bible. There's a pretty big record of it. Can I just tell you this this morning? You and I in our lives have done things far worse than embezzle. And yet we're still breathing right now because God is kind and patient and gracious and merciful and loving. But does this happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would tend to happen if the church is so filled of hypocrites, possibly why aren't more people dead? It's because God's gracious. But God did judge these two. Why would he do that? Because God's ultimate aim is not our happiness, it's our holiness. And a good father disciplines his own. Ultimately, an undisciplined disciplined child is a reflection of the father's character, and God would not allow himself at this moment to be portrayed as something that he's not by his people. I want you to also see under this point of judgment that God will not be mocked, especially by his own. He won't. And this is why, like, we struggle with this message today. Let me just stop just for a second. Like, like in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. The Lord's Supper. We're going to commune together in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The supper that he had with his disciples the night before the cross. 
This is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. Not that that bread is his body and that blood or that, that, that wine is his blood. It is, this is the picture and you partake of it to proclaim the gospel among yourselves until I come. That's the point. The first Corinthians 11 says that at the church at Corinth, Many were sick and some had even died because when they approached the Lord's table, they had hypocrisy and selfishness and sin in their life. So then just something like, yeah, we, you know, we found a good deal on the internet and we got these little wafer and this little juice thing combined and we're just going to stand up front and the deacons are going to stand here. And we're going to all come get one and we're going to sing a song and this is our Christian duty. no. There's nothing magical or mystical about that wafer. I mean, it doesn't even have taste, much less, you know, substance. You know what I'm talking about? Trying to be, trying to be faithful with God's resources, amen? But listen, hypocrisy is a big deal to God. And if there's one thing that's far more precious to God than your life and my life, it is the life of his son, and he will not be mocked when we remember his son's sacrifice. What if you were the parent of a soldier who was killed in battle, throwing himself on a mine or taking a bullet for several other men, and years later, when people remembered your son's sacrifice, they told jokes on either side of it, and they made light of it, and they made it a very, very, very casual thing that would frustrates you to no end, and more importantly, it would grieve you. And so when we remember, not the death of a soldier, as heroic as that is, when we remember that the Son of God took on the sins of the world in our place for our sin, bearing God's wrath that we might be declared innocent and righteous before God, it is not a trivial thing at all. In the New Testament, God was so grieved by it that some believers even lost their life is that a hard thing to grasp? Well, if you realize that what sin is and how awesome and incredible God is, it's very easy to understand then the great value of God's person and sin is against him. So I don't lay that upon you this morning to be paranoid because he's a father. He's a good father. And man, he's got a long fuse, praise God but we dare not provoke his anger. We dare not throw a pitch a fit and provoke him. So this morning, finally, what was the response? It was a response of fear. The church responded in fear. Verse five, great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. D.A. Carson said this, and I, man, I thought this was so incredible. In times of genuine revival, judgment may be more immediate than in times of decay. Because when God walks away from the church and lets sin multiply, that is the worst judgment of all. When God responds to sin with prompt severity, lessons are learned and the church is spared from even a worse drift. In this case, great fear fell not only on the church, but also on all who heard of these events. What do we find? First, reverent fear came upon the church. We're not going to take God lightly. 
We're not going to take our hearts before God lightly. These are weighty matters. What we promise God and what we pledge God matters. How we represent ourselves in front of God's people matters. God's name was held in more reverence and awe. But you know what? Reverent fear also came upon the community. If we don't take, one, one, one preacher said this one time, if we don't take God seriously, why should the world ever take us seriously? And so because the fear of God, the reverent fear of God, yes, he loves us, and yes, he provides for us, and yes, he's faithful to us, but he's God. He's not to be trifled. He's not to, to be uh, attempted to be coaxed. He's not uh, to, to, <laughs> to try to be swindled. He's God. He knows everything. And when the church lives in that type, guess what? Who we are before God begins to influence the world and their view of God. How do we apply this message as we close our Bibles? First, God hates and exposes hypocrisy in his people. God hates it. Aren't you thankful, though, that God's patient with our hypocrisy? Aren't you thankful that God, even sometimes the unconscious hypocrisy we have, that God is gracious to bring that up? And if God this morning reveals to you that you're, you've been a hypocrite and there's things in your life that you need to address, guess what? You know why he's doing that? Because he has mercy and grace and the power of the Spirit to help you. So that who you are in private might reflect who you are in public, that who you are portrayed before may be true in your heart. Secondly, God desires that we give sincerely and honestly. We give our tithes and offerings. We help those in need. God places things on our heart because you know what? That honors him. Because if God calls us specifically with money to give money away, to, to give a gift, to, to help someone, you know what we're saying at that point? My greatest treasure is Jesus. And he is worth more to me than United States currency. He's worth more to me than a piece of land. He's worth more to me than materials. It pleases God. Justin mentioned to you last week that kind of in this same flow as, as Barnabas, someone within our church was prompted to give uh, a sum of money so that one day we can possibly build a building. And you know what? If the Lord were to move on your heart for that reason, we're not ringing a bell up here. I'm just like, isn't it awesome that like when the Holy Spirit's at work, like, like people don't have to be begged, like you just respond in obedience, right? So if the Lord, like it doesn't have to be for, for that. It can be for that. Like, yeah, if the Lord leads you to do it, do it, right? But it could just be that you see a family and so your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing, but guess what? That family means more to you than United States currency and property. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Third, belonging to the church of God is amazing, serious, and humbling. God has invested all his wisdom and all his power and all of his grace and even all of his wrath expended on Jesus to create the church. What an amazing thing. What a humbling thing to be included in grace. Amen? We don't, we didn't enter into this season of church membership lightly. 
Lastly, from the great preacher John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is why we need accountability. Sometimes we're blind to our own hypocrisy. Sometimes we're blind to our own sin. And guess what? Somebody may point out, hey, bro, that sin, it's kind of killing you. Let me help you kill it by the power of the Spirit. Be killing sin. Be killing that in your life that stunts the image of Christ being formed and conformed in you. Be killing that which is an idol before this great, awesome, living, true God. I wish Acts 5, 1 through 11 didn't happen, but it did. And it serves as a warning to us. What Justin will go to next week is that you'll see when the Lord purifies his church, he keeps working in power. So the gospel this morning is that you don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to continue in your sin. If you don't know Christ, the judgment of God does hang over you, but guess what? It can be removed in an instant. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel because Jesus has come to take away your sin. If you're a Christian and there's hidden sin in your heart, expose it, confess it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And because of the nature of the passage this morning and because of what we're about to do as a church, I do want to give you an opportunity to sit before the Lord and commune with him for two reasons. Number one, an opportunity to confess sin to him, but an opportunity to be humbly appreciative of what Jesus has done. Christ was struck dead so that we aren't. Christ was punished that we might have life. And so we're just going to sit for a few minutes before we take the Lord's Supper together, humbly, reverently. You, you talk to him. You pray to him.